I don't think that architecture alone can solve some of these things. I, I don't think landscape alone can solve some of these things. I don't think policy can solve some of these things. And so a series of hybrid strategies that leverages the strengths of each discipline to kind of put a proposal on the table was very exciting. From the Harvard Graduate School of Design, this is Future of the American City, conversations on how we live where we live. I'm Charles Waldheim. We're here today with Sean Canty, an architect whose work focuses on questions of geometry and building type. Sean joins us today to discuss his work on emergent urban typologies. Sean, welcome. So, Sean, you've been, among other things, recently uh, engaged in some uh, research and design work uh, in Miami. Mm -hmm. Tell us about that. Uh, I was recently a part of a studio called Multiple Miamis, uh, taught with Chris Reed and Lily Song um, and myself, each one of us from different disciplinary backgrounds, me with a focus on architecture, Chris Reed and the focus of landscape and urbanism, and Lily Song and urban planning and policy. So in the context of uh, Multiple Miami Studio, you're interested in working on Overtown. Why is it that architecture is a relevant instrument to think about the challenges in a place like Overtown? Yeah, so, so Miami has a strong kind of um, cultural identity. There's images of Miami's urban environment, you know, proliferated in the form of movies, in terms of its beach culture, its nightlife. Um, so it has a very a strong image of its built environment um, that we all that we all know. Certainly, like other cities in America, like New York or San Francisco or even Chicago. And so in terms of typological innovation, in terms of Overtown, part of the interest of the studios maybe to how to respect some of this history, how to respect some of its existing types, and how to leverage them in order to, to think about other ways to address questions of equity, density, and, and infrastructure. I mean, as much as any other city in America, I think of Miami as a, a city where the... Um the architectural imaginary has played a key role. Mm -hmm. And in fact, you know, M Miami has both built itself, but also made itself available through certain images. And so you're suggesting that in that regard, you're interested in architecture as among other disciplines, equally relevant. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, one of the exercises we had the students do in the studio was called the mashup, which we allowed them to kind of look at the kind of canon of architecture, landscape, and urbanism and mm -hmm. find precedents. Um, from each one of these different disciplines and to essentially produce a kind of new hybrid paradigm that was then kind of um, speculatively cited in the kind of site and context of, of Overtown. But it forced the students to kind of produce this double imaginary of reconciling with typological baggage from the precedent, but also baggage from the context and also its the image of its built environment. I mean, it strikes me that among the reasons that type might be interesting as a tool in that kind of a context is it already in, implies it invokes history immediately. Absolutely. And given that you're interested in innovation, or could I say mutations, is that a fair assessment? Mm -hmm. Within typology, you have the ability to look at the history of the place through an architectural, architectonic lens, mm -hmm. but then equally imagine alternative futures. Absolutely. And the typological baggage in the context of Miami and even Overtown it's, it's good in some areas. So Miami Beach, the Art Deco, the two-story Art Deco hotels and, and houses there is a very positive image um, and one that we're all familiar with. The shotgun houses in Overtown, the history is a little bit more fraught. On the one hand, it is very much a part of the identity of, of that neighborhood and that community. 
but it's also a type that was kind of necessary in, in the only form of housing possible. I mean, Overtown is an area in Miami that's predominantly African-American. It's an area that was redlined in the construction of two important highways. So on the one hand, there's this interesting contradiction of trying to connect greater Miami, but also disconnecting or severing this neighborhood from the city at large. So like many American cities, Miami suffered this uh, racist redlining regime that was really a product of the New Deal era and modernist planning. Absolutely. And it's also, it shows the evidence of institutionalized racism, segregation around access to housing. And at the same time, Overtown built uh, a, a culture, a deep culture over many decades as a place where where, where both freedmen, but also others, a kind of a kind of black middle class emerged mm-hmm. at a point in time. So like uh, Bronzeville in Chicago or other parts of American cities, Overtown came to stand as a kind of cultural symbol for a certain form of uh, African-American experience. On one hand, Overtown is formed by ex- extreme segregation policies. On the other hand, those policies have now led to its current state and also led to the kind of vibrant culture of Overtown. And so there's another weird contradiction here. Mm. On the one hand, there is a a very present culture that has been a byproduct of this uh, poor act of policy and planning. And, And now it's currently under threat from forces of gentrification. So it's a kind of, in some ways, a bit of a lose-lose situation. And I think the studio tried to address how, mm. how to mitigate that. So among the threats, as you described them, first and foremost would be, you know, given Overtown's uh, geographic centrality in the context of Miami's you know, continued uh, growth and wealth and ex- kind of expansion, uh, increasing development pressures, among other pressures, to kind of reposition Overtown, make it available. At the same moment, of course, we would have to reference uh, changing climate in this part of the world. Mm-hmm. What other threats uh, should characterize our understanding of Overtown right now? Climate gentrification, the housing crisis, and transportation accessibility. Those three things are really critical to both the city and also to Overtown. Mm. And so political forces are, are seeing its value in terms of its, its centrality on being in, in terms of high ground and also as a potential kind of nexus, transportation nexus um, for development opportunities. And this is an area that has been largely ignored and um, neglected for some time, has formed a very strong um, Mm African-American culture, um, and it's now under threat. And you were able to, uh, with your colleagues and with your students, spend some time with the folks there and and get to know a little bit of that community. And how would you characterize their their aspirations, if, if you could? This is a story that has happened all across America. For Overtown, everyone knows its history very well. And I think we spoke with uh, many constituents there from different generations, and they all know its history. They all know what Overtown was like before the I-95 and I-395. They all know what happened after, and they all know what's about to come. Hmm. Um, And so it's a weird scenario. In most cities, this kind of history is buried or maybe um, overlooked, but um, it's very present. It's very much in the consciousness of those people that live in that community. I mean, I've been struck in in my experience in Overtown, the the incongruity, you know, the contrast between this community that really is at the kind of the center of this incredible ongoing growth around it, and in some ways the kind of spatial and in some ways social disconnect from neighborhoods that are not so far away. You know, a mile in any direction 
and you can't build the condominium towers fast enough. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, I think part of the challenge in Overtown is on the one hand, you know, for a, a whole number of reasons, I think people have been working very hard to maintain its identity and its community. And knowing that change is in the offing, not so clear as to how to think about that change, or in some ways, maybe not so clear as to how to imagine change that's not just wholesale redevelopment. Mm -hmm. I, I think that's where the kind of typological innovation comes in. I think a few projects in the studio really, one in particular, took on the this question of scale. What's the appropriate scale for development in a neighborhood like this, uh, where luxury apartment and condo towers are encroaching from the east and the west, but also trying to maintain its um, identity, trying to keep its history present. Um, the shotguns, they are very colorful, very vibrant. There's a kind of um, interesting situation of frontality that they set up towards the street. Uh, and one project in particular, uh, Evan and Rith's project, looked at a way of maintaining the shotgun typology, but kind of rethinking about zoning and reparcelization in such a way that ADU units or accessory dwelling units could be added to the back of a shotgun to kind of produce a new kind of urban block interior. And in some ways, this, this on one hand uh, allows for greater density of inhabitants and occupations for the community, but also might be a means or a step to giving equity for those that are already in the community. I was struck by a number of projects in the studio that you and your colleagues uh, worked with students on, that many of them, in spite of or enabled by your interest in, and focus on typology and typological innovation, how many of the projects were a combination of architectural typological innovation with some other policy or environmental or social drivers. Mm -hmm. Is that something that you've had experience with before? Is this unique in that regard? Or is that something that characterizes your work more broadly? I think this was a very unique opportunity and situation where I was actually able to kind of look outside of my own discipline and, and collaborate with my colleagues and the students on a variety of strategies that could address um, these kind of pressing issues that Overtown is facing. I don't think that architecture alone can solve some of these things. I, I don't think landscape alone can solve some of these things. I don't think policy can solve some of these things. And so a series of hybrid strategies that leverages the strengths of each discipline to kind of put a proposal on the table was very exciting, actually. In hearing you describe it that way, it strikes me that this approach to typological innovation seems quite timely. You know, in my experience of you know, architecture's interest and fascination with type, I think it can be viewed or has been viewed in certain contexts as really a retreat away from the externalities, a, a withdrawal into disciplinary history or professional uh, knowledge. And, and in fact, in, in your work, you're suggesting that, you know, typological innovation, in fact, happens, adaptation typologically happens in response to those external uh, conditions. Absolutely. I mean, types aren't aren't fixed, aren't constant, um, even though we like to think that they are, they are kind of baselines and they, they do develop and change over, t over time. Mm. Um, and so I think there should be renewed attention to, to this area of, of inquiry and, and research within the discipline of architecture, uh, because it's something that we uh, deep knowledge and history of. I mean, you, you referenced the, uh, the, sh the shotgun house. We've talked about the point tower as among two dominant types in Miami's mm -hmm. history. I mean, a couple of things I think that you've suggested to me that are, that are notable here. So as much as any other American city I know of, um, Miami has built itself through communities 
that identify themselves architectonically, mm-hmm. right? So in, in the logic of the Multiple Miami studio brief, as I read it, was a sense of Little Havana, Little Haiti, mm-hmm. Overtown. As much as any other American city, they've in some ways maintained their architectonic identity mm-hmm. as a part of their, uh, their social identity and their, and their history. Are there limits to stretching uh, the single family house, or the shotgun house type to new densities, new climate threats, uh, new conditions of urbanity? Yes, I would say. I mean, it's a question of scale, resources, density. And so I think a lot of projects in the studio tried to find a kind of, tried to find a sweet spot <laughs> um, in terms of, of thinking about the limits of, of type. And I think the limits of a particular type gives way to thinking through the way in which the ideas based in that type could have some continuity or some conversation with landscape or with uh, an urban or, or, or policy strategy. You know, recently I've been thinking about the way in which most of the American housing stock is single-family homes. In most cities, that's legal. <laughs> so let's say in California, 80% of the housing stock is single-family homes, mm-hmm. and it has to be that way. Mm-hmm. And actually, they just failed at um, producing, I think, SB50, which which was trying to um, make single-family development illegal um, to kind of force other modes of development and density. Is to think to think about how do we maintain the iconography of a neighborhood, of a context, and how to imagine if how to imagine how do we, how can we acquire more density within that framework? Mm. Um, and so I, I've been working on a few speculative proposals that really tries to maintain the image of of a kind of suburban urbanity or or of an urbanity but tries to think about subdivision and the, the transformation of typology to increase density in other ways so if inverting the current norm in terms of policy and development and and thinking about the other side of it mm. i mean you you're quite right in identifying, you know, generations, you know, decades and decades, uh, half century or more of both policy, but also kind of business models built around the idea of delivering the single family home as a kind of commodity. Mm-hmm. And then the kind of environments that get uh, that get kind of construed from that. Uh, you mentioned legislation in California. And of course, California has played a role historically in our fields in, in offering kind of progressive kind of new legislative forms in a way out ahead of the kind of the general consensus in North America about these topics. You went to school in California. How did you tell us how, how you chose to to study in California? What was that? What was that choice about? <laughs> it's deeply personal. Um, actually, growing up, uh, I'm originally from Philadelphia, and I grew up there. But uh, my mother and my grandmother actually lived in Pasadena um, when my grandmother was uh, finishing her college degree. Mm. And so, growing up, I just heard tons of stories about California and and how great it was and the regrets on leaving. <laughs> <laughs> so growing up in Philly, like, when did you have an appetite for thinking about cities or thinking about uh, architecture as a way forward? Like, uh, like, what, what, how, how did you get interested in the topic in the first place? So I, I was always interested in the in the arts. Um, I you know, studied piano. I took fine art courses. And I, I wanted to be in a creative school for high school. And my mother found a charter school, actually, that was called the Charter High School for Architecture and Design, which was a, a legacy project by the AIA, mm. I, I believe started in 1997, which truly tried to address a, a kind of 
disparity within the discipline of designers of color. Mm. And so the school was a, a very great experience. We had all of our normal high school courses, but we had studio. Fantastic. Um, and, wow. and then I also interned um, over the summers at a practice, mm. a local practice. So that kind of exposed me to um, not only architecture, but other design disciplines, industrial design, graphic design, uh, media arts. So in this charter high school in Philadelphia, what kinds of studio work were you doing as a high schooler? I, you know, I went to CCA, which is an, an art school, but it, it, it kind of mirrored your first year of, of college and art school. So you had your 2D course, you had your 3D course, mm. um, you had a more focused course in maybe spatial design. So it was kind of a the kind of the baseline skills and techniques and, and methods that you would need to know, mm. and also to to develop a portfolio in order to get into a kind of um, design oriented, artistic oriented um, higher education university. And so from that experience, how did you identify California College of the Arts in San Francisco as the as the right venue? I was so uncertain by the time I finished high school of whether or not I wanted to be a graphic designer, an industrial designer, <laughs> an architect. It all looked good. It all looked good. And I was just inspired by by each discipline and what they had to offer. And so on the one hand, I wanted to be an institution that even if I chose one discipline, I could I could take courses in the other. So I actually my major upon entering was industrial design. <laughs> and then on the first day I switched to architecture. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, and then I realized I had no other time to to take courses in other disciplines. <laughs> but you it's it sounds as though, you know, based on your 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 education in Philly, you you felt quite comfortable day mm -hmm. one in the context of the arts and design and across yeah. different media. That's mm -hmm. that's a that's a fantastic story. I mean, so when and where did, where did your interest in architectural typology emerge? Like wh when did that interest in typological innovation emerge for you as a primary focus of your work? I would say probably during my graduate studies um, here at the GSD. I think uh, I studied with and under um, professors that that really put that at the forefront in terms of their pedagogy and, and teaching, and became a kind of the lens through which I can understand both things that are deeply embedded within the discipline, but also how certain, how types are formed by outside forces the ways in which they socialize space, organize space, um, and then also the aesthetics that, that come along with that. And it strikes me that one of the things we talk about in this series is in our culture, we, we seem to have reached a point where we can either talk about policy and electing the right director of planning or the right mayor, if we had if we had the right federal system or if we had the right revolution in our economic system, we could imagine some better alternative urban futures. Or on the other hand, each project is immediately a singularity. It's that parcel of land. It's Hudson Yards. It's the Olympic bid. It's the sports stadium. And we seem to have lost uh, the capacity for thinking about collective outcomes mm -hmm. in the cities. And and it strikes me that your, your formulation of typological innovation and the way that you're describing typology is almost a, a kind of a, the accrual over time, the kind of layering up of a whole set of social and economic and political contexts as a kind of residue of that almost. Absolutely. Um, and so in that formulation, that view of typological innovation also strikes me as being particularly relevant today in letting us think about collectivity, but maybe in a less top-down way. Yeah, I think also that contemporary building practice and, and developments, we've kind of eradicated its agency in terms of the mixed-use typology. <laughs> 
where anything where anything goes, right? And so I think some of the residues of of singular types are kind of lost in these kind of new conglomerate, conglomerate buildings. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm just thinking, just simply Rim Kohlhaus's analysis of the downtown athletics club, even though that's in a singular building and a singular tower, when you cut the section or when you cut the floor plate, we still get residues of other distinct types that are found throughout the city of New York, kind of inside the interior of, of the building. And they're that kind of level of legibility, I think, um, gets gets lost in, in, in contemporary development. It's it's well put, and you, you're referencing, you know, delirious New York. Of course, we we've seen a couple of decades now of an interest in propinquity, proximity, the the density of urbanity. But by returning now to questions of architectural type, in the way that you're characterizing, uh, ad- advocating for, in a way, the kind of mixity of use and the kind of complexity of combination, a kind of urbanity. I mean, it, it strikes me that neither simply a kind of policy response nor simply a, an environmental response will deliver that level of urbanity. In part, you're, you're advocating for the role of the architect, the relevance of architecture in engaging societal and environmental mm-hmm. challenges. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, uh, absolutely. Um, I think in a lot of my work and research is actually maybe trying to, coming at it from the the design perspective and, and leveraging my skill sets and knowledge of the discipline but also looking at its application or trying to find avenues for application. And I guess in some ways this is a little bit bottom up, right? To, to think that maybe within a singular project that it could get other actors, other players um, to kind of come to the table and kind of uh, at least think differently about that problem or, or set of circumstances that they had not considered that they resorted to the norm. And so just imagining a kind of future that where the single family home is um, not okay to develop on a property where we have to kind of think about cohabitation um, uh, or um, co-ownership opens up, puts not only pressure on existing types, but puts pressure on developers, puts pressure on architects to kind of to think creatively about how to, let's say, simply to acquire more density within a lot size that that was made for, you know, the nuclear family, right? To think about how can we get more occupants on this lot, maintain the image of the city, uh, of, the, of the neighborhood, of the context. And that's something that's kind of, that falls particularly on the, on the architect's <laughs> lap, right? Mm-hmm. Like, uh, like we have a kind of deep rooted knowledge of how do we subdivide space? How do we how do we get access to light and air? How do we provide opportunities for collectivity with greater density of occupants within a building envelope or on the site? You know, part of what's appealing in that in that image of the role of the architect to me is that it it acknowledges the relative durability of things like property boundaries and policy frameworks. Because so often, as we think about the future of cities we find that the the regulatory and policy frameworks actually lag as as many legal structures do mm-hmm. societal change another thing that's appealing to me about this return to type if i could put it that way that's timely for me in, in your formulation of it is acknowledging that we can get on with it in an incremental way there's something about a typological framework in the way that you're describing it to me that suggests we could think about working at the scale of the project while being mindful of in aggregate larger uh, change. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's maybe um, 
out of the Miami studio, that was a bit of a revelation for me is, is, is that even as an architect, we tend to kind of work in a silo of our project. We're not always forced to think about those larger implications or the large implications a project might have on its context or neighborhood or, and so I think that kind of uh, awareness is productive and also allows you to be also critical of, of some of those structures that are in place. It's true what you're saying that many of the neighborhoods that characterize Miami's identity are the the little littles, right? So little little Havana, little Haiti, Overtown. It's true that their typological identities, their architectonic identities, weren't the result of planning. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they came as the kind of more direct expression of kind of architects working through problems, reconciling both kind of technical and kind of innovations in building materials and assemblies with questions of uh, racial and ethnic identity over a long period of time. And as a result, they kind of accrue meaning over time through the work of individual architects. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I, I can't say that for in, in the case of Overtown and mm -hmm. the shotgun house was just at the time what the community members could afford. It was mm -hmm. just a, a bit of a, a means, the cheapest means, but it, it accrued meaning and value in the community over time and has become something um, quite, quite special uh, that they would like to hold on to. We live in a culture in which I, I'm told and I believe it to be true that the majority of buildings built in this country think the majority of single family homes uh, don't have the benefit of an architect for better or for worse. Mm -hmm. And so how does how does typology and architect's interest in typology fit into that history? On the one hand, types socialize space in a very particular way and we know them. We know them well. We know how they do that. And I, th I think to be sensitive to that uh, in, in the community that you're operating in, to, to be sensitive of its histories, the, the good and bad, but to, to figure out uh, what to, to keep and maintain and then um, what to kind of strategically insert into that type to kind of push it forward and move it forward in, mm. in new ways. Mm. I'm interested also in the the way that you're thinking about typological innovation or reading type or let's call it deep structure in a place like Overtown as it provides a form of resistance to the immediately superficial uh, image. Mm -hmm. And in a place like Overtown, could we also add things like uh, humidity, inside-outside relationship, the relationship to the street and the porch? These are things that really transcend a kind of facadeism. Absolutely. I think then the types organization, there's crude knowledge over time that has dealt and baked in um, dealing with issues of climate of that particular region, inside outside conditions, the threshold between the interior of the building and the exterior on the street front, that might do a better job um, than you know forced air running through <laughs> a high rise condo. So let's talk about your current work. I know that uh, through <coughs> Studio Sean Kenty, you're engaged in a range of projects uh, looking at the future in, in various places uh, across the U.S. So tell us about what you're working on just now. At the moment, I, I've, I've looked at a series of projects that dealt with misalignments between geometry and type in terms of single-family homes, which were mostly looking like the kind of the quotidian, the kind of architecture that's somehow between attentive contemplation and backdrop, right? Like not trying to be too present, but present enough that one pays attention to it and also allowing for the quotidian to kind of um, happen within it. And then I've kind of shifted to this uh, body of research that looks at cohabitation and co-ownership. Uh, again, what I've spoken about earlier of trying to get higher density within a, a given typology through certain transformations, but maintain a kind of uh, urbanistic image of 
how a single family home should be situated within an urban context. So there's a kind of intentional mismapping between the appearance of what it looks like from the outside versus this organization on the inside. And this was largely inspired by a product by Barbara Bester. And she did a project called Blackbirds in Southern California, um, which dealt with this kind of misalignment or, or misfit between higher density and the architectural container. And so I, I've been trying to kind of permutate that idea on a, on a number of types from the shotgun house to other single family vernaculars. And in that process, also trying to integrate something and thinking about cohabitation and co-ownership, thinking about how, let's say, if three families have to live in one architectural container, how do we think about, how do new spaces emerge for socialization? So trying to insert somewhat of a kind of interior commons for all the parties to use in a different way. The more recent project is looking at infill lots. It's very urban. And looking at the row home in Philadelphia. Mm. Philadelphia has recently created a land bank in which it's trying to purchase land in disadvantaged areas and trying to steer development more strategically. And I've been trying to look at land bank to community land trust pipelines, and I haven't quite sussed out. <laughs> I think somewhere in there, there's a, a way that an architect can develop a mode of practice within this pipeline mm. to perhaps help community land trust think about modes of development that are particular to their needs and addressing them and bringing this kind of knowledge and attention of, of typology. So Philadelphia, of course, many parts of it, in, in spite of the, the city's kind of renewal and in some ways kind of uh, resurgence as a kind of vibrant, kind of dense, uh, urbane place, many parts of Philadelphia have been, of course, you know, shrinking. Many parts have been, as you say, kind of abandoned. Many parts have been thrown into various regimes of land banking. And, and in, in my own work on shrinking cities, of course, parts of Philadelphia have been quite central as case studies. Mm -hmm. So in, in your work, do you often begin um, in a context like working in a city or working in a, a jurisdiction and then derive typological interest from that? Or do you begin typologically and then look for venues where that research might be applicable? A little bit of both, but I would say mostly looking typologically and then finding the appropriate scenario to situate it in. But it does work both ways. In in this case, it's really looking at the row house and starting with the row house typology and trying to think about irregular infill conditions. So finding design opportunities and sites that have been overlooked or neglected. And in a city like Philadelphia, there's so much vacancy and blight in certain areas that you can get five or six irregular contiguous lots and to think about how do you aggregate these lots in such a way that allows you to, to rethink a, a kind of design strategy for them. In some ways, I've been aggregating the lots, these irregular lots together, and Instead of starting completely anew, like a kind of tabula rasa, it's more uh, re-inscribing the kind of dimensions and metrics of the row home back onto new envelope or container. So even though it, it allows for a greater mass or a greater architectural figure to occupy those sites, the subdivision and the re-inscription of the row home um, becomes important of bringing a kind of urban typology back into the back into the picture. Oh, that's interesting. So in this version, in your studio, typology is doing at least two things. So on the one hand, it's unlocking or revealing the potential of things that were somehow overlooked because of their irregularity. Mm -hmm. 
but then in reinscribing a kind of re a reading of type, you're also then somehow invoking some sense of memory while you're changing that history as well. Yes, in, invoking some kind of dimensional memory of the row home. And if, again, the row home also in Philadelphia is about for the single family in most cases. And so thinking about new strategies of subdivision that allow for density within that constrained lot dimension is, is what this new series is after. I mean, a part of the, the through line from what you've said about your work in Overtown in Miami, the work on the row house in Philadelphia is a, a sense almost of bodily memory, a sense of, you know, kind of spatial memory, the reinscription of certain dimensions and certain relationships that one, you know, whether consciously or subconsciously would, would produce meaningful experiences. T to what extent does that in your work depend or build upon material memory? So you've referenced certain material assemblies mm -hmm. as a part of that, but I also tend to think of typology as often abstracted out of material, mm -hmm. and that's a part of its utility, mm -hmm. but you've also invoked materiality. So tell us about the role of material assemblies or material in that sense of memory and meaning. Yeah, I mean, I would say in all of the work, just the way that I operate, there's a form of a abstraction. And so I think it gets you closer to the type versus falling into, as we talked about earlier, kind of stylistic tropes or baggage that comes with the type. So I think you can still carry on the kind of material legacy of the place, but but maybe leave away some of its more superficial trimmings and, and, and such. So, but it's an interesting question because I, you know, explored multiple options in which is it brick or is it not <laughs> is it not brick khan's looking over my shoulders and saying it's he's it's, with us all um it should be, there should be brick but <laughs> setting aside what the brick wants to be i mean it's not that valence of reading meaning into the brickness of it it's it's actually the potential of communicating with people either kind of consciously or, or subconsciously through material experience absolutely yeah I'm interested in this concept of uh, cohabitation. Uh -huh. uh, a, a part of what's appealing to me in, the, in your formulation of it is it, it's clear and timely, mm -hmm. and it speaks to an immediate question of socialization mm -hmm. that then invokes or implies a set of architectural problems. Mm -hmm. Right. So I, 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 you know, happened to spend some time in Toronto during a moment of intense debate about laneway housing. I know in various contexts, uh, Chicago, for example, has gone through a process to think through the densification of its alleyways and any of the granny flat. And mm -hmm. I know that these conversations are quite often very local, different policy framework, d different uh, built morphologies. Tell us more about your conception of cohabitation and the forms that that work takes and how that might give you a way into thinking about the future of the city. With cohabitation, I think in my own work, trying to think about how an idea about a collective space or a kind of interior commons could be integrated or added necessity in this new imagined world of cohabitation that doesn't force, but maybe provides opportunities either visually or spatially for people to kind of get together and to socialize. I mean, in the case of a home, sometimes it's as simple as a shared kitchen or allowing for a courtyard to be a kind of flex space between occupants that are cohabitating or, or, or co-owning a space. Shared commons that is not public, so it's not a backyard, it's not a front yard, it's somewhere in between. And I, th I think that's where kind of typological innovation comes in in terms of thinking about the city, thinking about new forms of residential types, thinking about the block, thinking about the urban block, uh, thinking about the ways in which alleyways, backyards, porches, can be essential assets to producing a more kind of mixed 
collective and integrated um, society. These spaces that you're speaking of, you know, the alleyway, the porch, the backyard, these are in some ways a kind of American informal vernacular, these spaces, but they are so also spaces of encounter. I mean, you're you're suggesting that I think it's true that, you know, buildings and certainly homes have historically been among the ways we distance ourselves from each other. But at the same time, I, we're well aware that all the social science research suggests we're happier when we live with each other mm -hmm. and that the architect you're suggesting plays a key role in providing spaces of encounter, spaces in which we can live both in greater density and greater proximity, but also encounter each other and live with each other as opposed to using architecture as a, a tool of uh, distancing. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's maybe some of our responsibility to kind of maybe undo some of the, the bad policy and developmental practices I mean, our government was very complicit in, in, in segregating America in, in many ways, uh, even in neighborhoods that were very integrated. In order to put affordable housing in them, it had to be black or white, right? And so this kind of segregation that has happened over time has really done a disservice to the American residential landscape. And so I think finding these opportunities urbanistically and typologically to undo that at all costs is of great interest to me. Thanks for being here. Thank you. You've been listening to Future of the American City, curated by the Office for Urbanization at the Harvard Graduate School of Design. This conversation was supported by the Knight Foundation and the generous donors to the American Cities Fund. Our producers are Aziz Barber, Charlie Gilliard, Jeffrey S. Nesbitt, and Mercedes Peralta. Music is by Kevin Graham. To learn more, visit votac.gsd.harvard.edu.